0: Well if you have your bibles would you open with me to 1 Corinthians 15 we're not going to read it quite yet so we don't we don't need to but just to get there, be ready for it. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to be in verses 1 through 5 today. But we will be concluding our Christ Meets Me Everywhere series. And what we've been doing throughout this series is we've been looking throughout the Old Testament, seeing how those scriptures point to Christ. So we, we launched the series from Luke chapter 24, where Jesus is having a conversation with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, and it says, I mean, they preach a gospel to him that leads to disappointment and, and sadness. And, and Jesus responds by saying, like, no, you're preaching the wrong gospel. Like, the, the gospel is that Jesus must die and would suffer and would rise again on the third day. And then he goes back throughout the scriptures and points to how all of them pointed to him. And what the result of that was in the life of the disciples was they were then filled with passionate joy and missional zeal. Because we see that they're walking away from Jerusalem. They actually turn around and run back to Jerusalem when their eyes are open to understand who Jesus is through the scriptures. And so this has been our goal throughout the series, that we would place the just the supremacy of Christ and the centrality of Christ before our people, hoping and praying that seeing Jesus would lead to lives being transformed, passionate joy, and missional zeal because our city needs Jesus. That gets an amen every time, and I love it. I should just preach that every Sunday. Um, so my, my prayer for this series is that we will experience that passionate joy and that we will end up like the disciples in acts chapter 4 where they say they say we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard and this is under severe persecution that they're saying this they're saying hey stop talking about jesus and like we can't we can't help it we've encountered the living god and so we have to share And that's my prayer for us, is that when we encounter Jesus, when we see what he's done, we would not be able to stop ourselves from talking to everyone about it. My prayer is that through this, we will see people who have never encountered Jesus before encounter him in the redemptive story of God through the word of God. And so maybe you're here and you're asking, okay, that's great, but really that's the first sermon series you did on your pastorate? Why? Why would you choose that? Why wouldn't you do something that makes you seem a little more relevant? So today, I'm just going to let you know, I'm laying all of my cards on the table, every single one. I am, I am going to let you know today what I am about and what I believe our church should be about and what I believe that the Lord has called the people of God to be about. And so today you're going to understand what I'm about, what the Bible's about, what I believe we need to be about in all that we do here. So why start off my pastorate with this series? Why is this so important for us? Because I want to make sure that above all else, we orient our hearts, we orient our lives, we orient everything we do in this church, and my entire time as pastor here, around this truth, around the most important thing, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and I'll just, I'll be honest, I'm praying for 40 years here, that, that, that the Lord would give me 40 years, and as long as I'm here, this is what we're going to be about is the gospel. And if we shift from that, we've done something wrong. And so we need to be centered around the gospel, because when a church is centered around the gospel, it influences everything. The gospel transcends culture, it transcends generation, it transcends gender, it transcends all things. I mean, how is it that the exact same thing that was transforming transforming lives 2,000 years ago is still transforming lives today? The message didn't change. Our goal is not to become more relevant. It's to lift up Jesus Christ in every area of life. And if we, oh my gosh, if we get away from that, and if we move in the direction of becoming more relevant or becoming more hip and away from uplifting Jesus, then we've done something wrong and we need to shut our doors. And so, maybe I'm getting a little angsty today, but I'm really excited about this. And I, I believe this in my bones and in my heart that this has to be what's most important for us. The gospel transcends a political divide. And when we are centering ourselves around Jesus and his work, we're going to see our church start to walk in health. And if we're not centered around his work, it doesn't matter how much we grow, we won't be healthy. And so, we've been taking the time in this series to reveal Christ in all of Scripture. And the purpose of this is to set a framework for our lives that when we read the Bible with Christ at the center, it changes everything. When we orient our lives with Christ at the center, it changes everything. And so, here's my point today the gospel changes everything, it changes everything. The answer to every problem, every fear, every temptation, every sin is more and more Jesus, more and more gospel. And sometimes this means we actually need gospel truth so we can dive in and do the deep work in our heart that needs to be done. But we need the gospel in order to walk out in life. And we need it first and foremost in our lives. So here's what I'm looking to do today. I'm going to present the glorious truths of the gospel I'm going to unpack why I think the gospel is the most important thing for us to be following and pursuing and keeping in front of us. Then I'm going to give some practical realities that the gospel changes because I don't want to just say the gospel changes everything and not tell you how. And then I'm going to exhort us to keep the gospel front and center. And so here's my main idea today. You walk away with anything, walk away with this. The gospel is what's most important and it changes everything. The gospel is what's most important and it changes everything. So let's go. 1 Corinthians 15, we're starting verse one. We'll read through verse five. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you would send your son to die for us. We are just so thankful, Lord, that throughout history you have been working all things for your glory and the good of your people. Lord, I pray that we as a church would never move past the gospel, Lord. Far be it from us to move past the gospel. Or to treat the gospel as a prayer or Is something that gets us in the door, Lord, but may it be our everything. May it be our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so I've said, I've made this claim that the gospel changes everything. Now, you may be in here and you're like, that's great, gospel, that's a fun word. So let me just kind of unpack that. So I think we have to ask, what is the gospel? What is it? Let's look at the text. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. I think we see three things happening in these two verses, and and, and that's this. The first is that that the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. So it was always God's plan to bring about redemption for his people through the death of Jesus Christ. That was always God's plan. So that's what we've been unpacking in this sermon series of Christ Meets Me Everywhere. That according to the scriptures little tag. That's what we've been doing is we've been revealing how scriptures point to Jesus and why this is what the scriptures are talking about. And so the gospel, number one, is that Jesus died according to our sins. The second is that the gospel is that Jesus was buried. Not only did he die for our sins, but he took our sins to the grave. He took the punishment for those sins upon the cross, and it wasn't this false facade of like, well, it's just kind of like a death, and then, you know, he wasn't really dead. No, he died. He was in the grave for three days. So the gospel is that Jesus died, and Jesus was buried, and then that Jesus rose again. And I think we have to make a note here it wasn't like he just rose, and then people, you know, kind of made up with his story. It's that Jesus rose again visibly. This is exactly what we celebrated last week on Easter, that Jesus rose from the dead and because he rose, we are now invited in to feast with him forever, to commune with him forever. Not only did he die for our sins, not only did he take them to the grave, but then he left our sins there and rose again victorious. And this is not a myth, but this is a historical reality as evidenced later on in the chapter by him appearing to over 500 people. This isn't just a made-up story, it's a fact. I think one of the things we have to know and we have to recognize, I think one of the most actually telling and, and really... the. One of the highest proofs for Jesus to me is, is the Bible doesn't sugarcoat things, right? So if we look at the end of the gospels, what do we see, or the end of Jesus' life, what do we see the disciples doing? They're fleeing because Jesus is about to die. So they're running in the opposite direction. And then this amazing thing happens. They're fleeing from death. Jesus rises again and appears to them. And then throughout the rest of the New Testament, what do we see? The believers running towards death. For the sake of the gospel you don't stake your life on a claim that's a myth and we see that because they didn't earlier on it's not like they they you know we're gonna run and then we're gonna just change our mind no they they ran and then jesus appeared to them and it fueled them in the opposite direction and so if this is real this is a historical reality and if jesus really did rise again then that should motivate us as we step out into ministry that this gospel message is worth sharing. So the gospel is that Jesus died, he rose again. So I think what we can confidently say is that what's implicit here and what's implied is that Jesus also came. So Jesus was He came to earth. He lived his perfect life, died for our sins, and rose again three days later, victorious over sin and death. And so Jesus is the gospel. The message of Jesus Christ is the gospel. Okay, so that's what the gospel is, but what does this actually mean? Like, what does it mean for us? How does this affect us? Because that's a nice, quaint story, but I don't know what that means. So I think we have a tendency to view the gospel as a prayer. So we, we pray or something that happened in the past that gets us into the kingdom, right? So preacher was really convincing and he got you to raise your hand. You're like, yes, I want to give my life to the Lord. Awesome, that was the gospel. I gave my life to the Lord. But that's not it. That's part of it, but it's not it. So, so sometimes we say, well, the gospel got me saved and now I go into deeper things or the gospel is what saved me, but now I keep it up with my good works and that's not at all how this works. That's not how the gospel works. Let's look at the text again. Let's look at verse one. So we see that Paul preached the gospel. That's important. So the gospel is a message that was preached to them. Then two, it says they received the gospel. So this is that moment where they, they say, yes, I want to give my life to the Lord. They received the message of Jesus Christ. So they receive it. So that's a past tense thing. And then what's next? We, we, let's go on. The gospel is something that received in the past, but it it doesn't end there. It says that it's what they've taken their stand in, which means that right now, present tense, they are standing in the gospel. It's not just a past tense reality. It's also present tense for them. The gospel has present realities that influence the life of the believer. It's not just a past decision and, and a future glory that gets us into heaven one day but it's a present hope and sure foundation on which to stand. And then we see a third third session. So we've got past tense that they received it, present tense that they stand in it, and then we have future tense that it's by the gospel that they are being saved. Past, present, future. And this is something that continues to happen in the life of the believer. Unto future glory where we will be with the Lord forever. It's not past decision or a present barometer, but it's also a future hope. So the gospel is past, it is present, it is future. It's not just something that gets us into the kingdom. The gospel is life. It's everything that God brings us into and invites us into. It doesn't just affect us in the past. It doesn't just affect us in the, pu- in the future. It affects every area. Past, present, future. So it's not a prayer we pray and then we strive for maturity. It's, it's literally the place that we stand in. And so our goal is not just to be better by our own works, but to continue digging deeper into the gospel, to continue leaning into Jesus. That's the striving of the Christian life. How can I lean into Christ more? Where are there areas of my life that he has not made himself Lord and influenced those areas? The gospel fuels us to step into those spaces The gospel is our past, it is our present, it is our future, and so help us if we ever move past it thinking, okay, that's great, now I'm on to practicals and moral lessons to make me a better person. No. Leaning into the gospel is how we see transformation. It's the power of God for salvation. So if we believe that sin is the biggest problem. That every, everything that's fractured and broken in the world is because of sin. And, and sin dwells inside of us, And just in case you didn't know that. It's, it's us. We're, we're the problem. So if we are the problem, if sin is the biggest problem, and, and it's at the root of all the world's problems, and that even as Christians we will still wrestle and deal with sin, if we believe those things... And, and that we believe that the power to deliver from sin is, is found in the gospel, then why would we ever move on from it? Why would we ever move on from the gospel if it's the power of God for salvation from sin? The gospel is the most important thing. It's of first importance for us as a church and as believers. And it's not like, okay, you take your gospel 101 and then you move on to theology and then you move on to good works. No, that's not it. The gospel is what we need to keep before us at all times. We need to strive to hold fast to that, strive to continue entering into the finished work of Christ, striving to rest in him. But we have this little side note, unless we believed in vain. Now, here's what this text usually does, this little unless we believed in vain. You know, so you have certain theologians that are like, "Well, you you can lose your salvation. You have other theologians that are like, you can't lose your salvation. They're both missing the point here. So here's what we need to make sure that we recognize from this. That's not what this text is saying. Because what Paul is actually making an argument for is that if they don't believe Christ raised from the dead, then they didn't believe the true gospel. We can see that down further on in the passage. So they, they believed in something other than the actual gospel, and so it was vanity for them to believe that. But if we believe in the trustworthy, the trustworthy me- message that Christ has died for sins, he's risen defeating sin, and because Christ defeated sin and death by the power of the gospel, by leaning deeper into Christ, we can also overcome, then we did not believe in vain. So if you're looking at this morning, did I believe in vain? Like, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Yes. Do you believe that he rose again victorious? Yes. Do you believe that the power of, gospel, of the gospel is how you can overcome those sins in your own life? Yes. Well, then you didn't believe in vain. That's the gospel. And now we just hold fast to that. We grab hold of it and we never let go. This is why the gospel is the most important thing I think we have to ask the question, okay, so what happens then when the gospel loses its place of first importance? What happens? What do we see when that happens? We're we're reading in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're not familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, it is a wild time, all right? There's some wild things happening in this, this book, and at the end of it, this seems to be Paul's like magnum opus solution for them. This is it. The gospel is no longer of first importance. And so the issues that we see happening in this church are we see divisions in the church. We see the sin of partiality, where they're looking at people based on worldly success and thinking they're something. We see that sexual sin is rampant. We see unloving conduct towards others. We see marriage problems. We see idolatry. We see spiritual gifts are being misused. We see that there's a sin surrounding the Lord's table. It's a complete mess. And Paul's answer to that is they left the gospel as being of first importance. It was here, and they moved on from it. Something else became present in its place. It might have been a good thing. It might have been we saw the spirit moving, so that's what we follow. But like, no, they left the gospel that was no longer of first importance to them. And because of that, it led to the church being a complete and total mess. And so that's why I say at the beginning of the sermon it doesn't matter how big we grow. If we leave the gospel, we're going to be unhealthy. This is of first importance. It is the most important thing for us. And so we need to keep the gospel as most important because it changes everything. And this is not just a generic, well, it changes everything. It's special. No, it literally influences every area of life. Everything. Because you're a human being who has sin in you. And you're relating to other human beings who have sin in you and creation which has been fractured by sin. And if the power for salvation from those things is the gospel, then it should influence literally everything you do. There's not a single situations in our lives that the gospel doesn't influence and transform. And so here's where I'm going for the rest of this sermon. I'm going to unpack a few areas where I think that the gospel influences. I can't get to all of them today unless you want to stay here till, you know, eternity. Um, but I want, to, I want to point out a few so you can see kind of what I mean when I say that. Like, I don't want this just to be this ethereal thing that none of us can relate to. I want us to, to be able to take this and apply it. And so how does the gospel influence areas of money? How does the gospel influence sexual sin? How does the gospel influence marriage? How does the gospel influence suffering? So we're going to cover those four areas, and then I'm going to invite you at the end of this sermon to ask the question of whatever the biggest problem in your life is, how does the gospel influence this? How does the gospel shape this? How does the gospel change this? How does the gospel transform this? So here we go. Let's, let's start with money. And, and I just want, before we get into these four, like, I'm probably gonna spend two to three minutes on each one of them. I'm not gonna have the ability to nuance every single one of these perfectly. So I'm gonna give some examples and hopefully those will be practical enough for you to use them in maybe your own relationships with these things. So money. So maybe you came in here and you're like, all right, the gospel changes everything. Well, you don't understand the mountain of debt that I have. So how do I get out of debt? Am I just gonna preach the gospel to my bank account? Like, what is that? So how does the gospel change that? Well, I think we have to start by saying that that if, if if our heart is a sinful heart, then our desires are bent towards sinful things. And maybe they're good things, but our desire is sinful to want those things. And so what often happens and what specifically happens, I'll say, in a Western context, where most people are in debt, just in case you didn't know that, we spend outside of our means. We look at the things in front of us and we say, I don't have that, I want that, and we, we, haven't, we haven't figured out why something in our heart wants that, and so instead of actually working out those things by the power of the gospel, we buy, and we get in debt, and we live beyond our means, and, and so... The answer to this is to stop living beyond your means. And while well, you're like, okay, well, how do I do that? Well, you recognize that your means don't define you. And we live in a culture that's going to tell you otherwise. Like, the entire world is literally discipling you to buy, buy, buy. You don't have buy. And so, what you need in your life is to be re I stole that term, that's not mine, but it's fun. So because Christ has defined himself by your sin, taking the punishment for it on the cross, you are now no longer defined by your means, but you're defined by Christ and his resurrection. It's Christ that now defines you. And so you don't need all of the stuff that this world tells you that you need in order to have meaning. And in order to have value, in order to fill those needs in your heart, you've got meaning and value and purpose in Christ, in the gospel. So how we spend our money actually reveals where our heart is at. It's a reality of what's going on inside of us. And I think this is actually actually why the Lord commands us to give and gives us the gift of giving as a grace for us. Because what it says to us is, you have a Lord over your finances, and it's not you. It's not your impulses. It's not your desires. And the moment that we start to shift our attention from self to the grace of giving, whether that's to the church or to the people we see in need around us, the Lord uses that to break the power of money over our lives, because we can't serve two masters, so the gospel influences that. It influences the way that we spend our money. So the second area we're going to get into is, is sexual sin. And so, so maybe you're in here and you're saying, okay, well, I don't have money problems, but, but like, man, I, I cannot stop sinning sexually. I, I can't stop watching porn. I can't stop masturbating. I can't stop sleeping with somebody who's not my spouse. I can't stop doing those things. So, so what do I do then? How does the gospel influence that? Well, I think you've got to realize that every single one of those things comes down to an issue in your heart. Again, they're, they're, the answer is, is not here to throw away your computer, to never be alone with yourself, or to run up to the mountains as far away from human as possible and just be a hermit. That's not the answer here. We have thousands of years of, of like uh, individuals who were so Christian and so wanted to defeat sin that they ran and hid in the mountains and they realized that their sin followed them there. Man, I'm still lusting after people. Why? Because like, well, you're a sinner. It's a heart issue. and Unless you're going to cut out your heart, you can't run away from that. So what's the solution? You need a new heart. You can never get away from your heart. And so these things, while they might be helpful, right? It might be helpful to set up accountability. It might be helpful to, to not be alone as much. They might be tools that are that are used to help you overcome but they're not the power to overcome. The power to overcome, the solution is, is to realize that there is somewhere inside of you that you are broken and you need to invite the gospel to bring healing there. Why do I need these things to satisfy me? Why Why am I so addicted to these things? Am I not invited in to find complete and full satisfaction in God? What need in my soul am I trying to fill with these counterfeit gods? And then I think we invite people in because if the gospel has freed us from shame and condemnation, then we invite people into these spaces because we recognize that I'm no longer defined by them. Like, the gospel has freed me from that. So, we, we open up and we shine the light of the gospel into the darkest parts of our lives. We invite people to know where we're at. We invite others to preach the good news of Jesus' defeat of your sin and to help you walk in victory. So, maybe you're in here and you're saying, Well, Austin, that's, that's great, but I, I don't have money problems, I, I don't sin sexually. Um, but my spouse and I are, are both Christians, we believe the gospel. And our marriage is just really terrible. What then? What do I do then? How does the gospel influence that? Because so far it just hasn't worked. I think what you need to know and what you need to recognize is that you and your spouse are both sinners. So, husbands in the room, I hate to break it to you, but your wife is a sinner. Wives in the room, I hate to break it to you, but your husband's a sinner. And if you're not married yet, just so you know, you're going to marry a sinner. And you're a sinner. All right, so we're all clear on that. Good. You did not marry a perfect person and neither did your spouse. And while that may be a surprise for you, it's certainly not a surprise for the one who died for those sins. And so this is, this reality that you're both sinners and you're now coming into a common living space and sharing that is going to inevitably lead to tension, to disappointment, and to unmet expectations. Like it's going to. And, and so, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out for us the key to a good marriage and then you're going to have to apply it to your own situation because I don't know what's going on in all your lives. So look at the person in front of you, look at your spouse, And recognize that this person is just deeply loved and deeply cherished and and they are not God. (laughs) They are not God. That's key. And if your Savior is Jesus, then you're not asking this flawed, un or this flawed, imperfect person to solve and save all your problems. So you can now move forward into relationship knowing that this person will disappoint you. They will not meet all of your expectations, but you are invited to love them in spite of that. To love them through that without expecting them to be enough to save you. And also, just so you know, you're not their savior. And so you're not their savior and they're not your savior. And if that is true, then that's really good news because this person can't fix you, and you can't fix this person. You have to lean into Christ together, because He's the only one who fixes brokenhearted failures. Amen. And I think what's what's fascinating here is that, that marriage is actually a picture of Christ and the church. So let's unpack that for just a moment. I'd like you to think, who's the faithful party in that marriage? It's certainly not the church. We, we, we are just, we're a disappointment, we're filled with unmet expectations, and we're really just terrible sinners. And then we have the other side of this, who is a perfect, pure, glorious Savior, and he deeply cherishes and loves us. So why is this a picture of Christ in the church? Because even with the unmet expectations found on the other side, there's still one party who is deeply loving and pouring out. And so there are going to be moments in your life when your spouse does not meet your expectations. And it could lead to disappointment. And your responsibility and your role is to remember what Christ has done for you. That you have been unfaithful to him and he calls you deeply loved and cherished. And it's going to go the other way. There are going to be moments where you are not meeting expectations. And here's the deal. If you're placing the barometer for your identity upon what your spouse thinks of you, you will always, always, always be crumbling at any time that they think that you're not enough. And so you have to remember that when I am one who has not met expectations that Christ has been faithful to me. And so husbands, look to Jesus, understand what he has done for you, how he laid his life down for you so that you would have a future and a hope so that you would have life. And then here's the invitation. Die to yourself. For your wife. And point her to Jesus in everything. Lay down your life so that she can have a future and a hope. So that she can have life. So that she can visibly see and know that she is cherished and loved. And I'll tell you this. It's not hard to walk in submission to somebody who's ready to lay down their life for you at any moment. And in anything. Wives. Look To Jesus. Understand what he has done for you, how he has laid down his life for you so that you would have a future and a hope so that you would have life. Then point your husband to Jesus in everything. And not, you're the worst right now. You're not being like Jesus to me. No, be the picture of Christ in the church. Remind him of his identity in the Lord. Remind yourself of your identity in the Lord, even when your husband doesn't do a good job of reminding you of this. And walk in the truth that even when expectations go unmet and you're just exhausted by him, that Jesus is still dying for him even now. Now, this is not an excuse to stay in abusive situations. If you are in an abusive situation, you need to get help. And, and we'd be happy to, to prayerfully walk through that with you. It's not an excuse to do that. But what this is, is an opportunity to invite the gospel to shape our way of living, that it helps us to view people through the lenses of identity in Christ and not our unmet expectations. Now, maybe you're in this room and you're saying, well, I don't have money problems, I don't deal with sexual sin, and I'm not married, but I'm suffering, and I am hurting. And that prayer earlier, I just don't believe it's going to work. I don't believe that my, I'll be healed. So there are those of you in this room that are feeling the weight of that. And you may be asking, I didn't do anything to deserve this pain I'm going through. How does the gospel change this? Now for some, suffering is the consequences of sin. You may have done some things in your past that led to this. But for others, suffering is the consequences of sin in the world that we live in a broken environment. And God, God's answer to that suffering is twofold. One, he is so good and so sovereign that he is not only able to use that suffering for his glory and our good, but he promises to do so. And two, God doesn't stay distant from that suffering. Instead, Jesus, the God-man, subjects himself to that suffering. He lives a life of pain. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And his death on the cross was an ultimate form of suffering for us. And now he can sympathize with us in those places. But more than that, his resurrection is hope for us that one day we will not be subject to the sting of death anymore, whether that's in this life or in eternity. This is not the end of your story. And this is also not a place that God is not able to work. Whether by healing you miraculously or by using this as a space where your story can actually point others to Jesus. That's the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And this is what we have This is the message that has been delivered to us. This is the most important thing for us. I'm not an entertainer. None of you would pay to see me. Like I'm, we as a church and and the church throughout history does not have the resources to just help people live better lives. We have the gospel. And there's a reason why that works in villages in India with no air conditioning in 140 degree weather just as well as it works here. But if we abandon it and if we move on to other things, we have forsaken the only power we have. And so that, that's why this series is so important for us to keep Jesus front and center to keep the gospel front and center and so I want to invite you today to ask that question how does the gospel shape this moment how does the gospel shape this struggle and if you don't know if you don't know that's okay lean into Jesus more Lean into the gospel, start asking questions of it. Just because you can't figure it out right then and there doesn't mean there might not still be an answer. We become what we behold, and the more that we look to him in everything, the more that we will see how he changes everything. And so we cannot move past the gospel, and we cannot stop asking this question as a church and as a body of believers. How does the gospel shape this? How does the gospel influence this? And how does the gospel change it? And we also always need to be asking, have we moved the gospel from its position of most important, of first importance? Because it's possible that we have. It's an unfortunately easy thing to do. And far be it from us to ever make that mistake. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are, oh man, Lord, you're just better than we deserve. And we thank you so much that you have not left us to fend for ourselves in this world, but you have instead provided us with the power of the gospel. Lord, for those in here who are finding this hard to believe or or don't understand how this could be true, I pray that you would meet them this week and that it would be abundantly clear that you give power to transform through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.